Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Here's the 39th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into a life journey that's likely quite different than yours. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that level the playing field and help everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, learn, struggle, work, and live in our world. My guest today is the closest I've come to speaking with an angel. In the 2004 Asian tsunami in Sri Lanka, she was on the ground managing a busy field hospital and overseeing the rebuilding of community. Her award-winning documentary, The Third Wave, chronicles her Sri Lanka volunteer experience. It debuted at the 2008 Cannes Film Festival in a presidential jury jury screening presented by Sean Penn and Bono. She followed with a book, The Third Wave, a volunteer story. For the past 25 years, she's run large refugee camps, field hospitals, and resilience command hubs in natural disasters around the world, including the Syrian, Afghan, Venezuelan, and Ukraine refugee crises. As a glimpse into her world, in 2010, she volunteered for eight months in the cholera outbreak in Haiti, where hundreds of people died in her arms. That year, she and Sean Penn managed a 75,000-person IDP, which stands for Internally Displaced Persons Camp and Field Hospital in Haiti, after the earthquake killed 300,000 and injured over 1 million. She worked alongside a U.S. Army general in the 82nd Airborne, reporting directly to the CDC and U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. No surprise, she was just recently in Maui providing aid after the deadly wildfires and in Florida with the latest hurricane destruction. Her full-time volunteer work started as a first responder at the 911 attacks in New York City, where she worked at Ground Zero for nine months. We're in for a moving journey, folks. I'm humbled to welcome Global Humanitarian Volunteer, founder and executive director of Third Wave Volunteers, which she founded on September 11th, 2001, Allison Thompson. Allison, welcome to Our Voices. Thank you for having me. We just got back from a hurricane, so I'm a little groggy, but I'm here and I'm ready to excite you about how everyone can get involved. (laughs) Yes, and you are a living example of that. We must give first a shout out to our dear friend, Mark Excelowitz, who was Mm -hmm. beside exuberant that we were connecting and you were joining us. So you have a very big fan in Mark. Oh, I'm a big fan of his. Thank you, Mark. It's a win. So, Allison, this is the thing. You're... (laughs) presence like how you show up is one of such calm while your work brings you to some of the most tense and heartbreaking situations you know i'm in awe of you and how you've made you your way to truly your work um you're kind of living the work as love made visible so i just appreciate you taking us back uh, to your youth and through the journey of uh, who and what shaped you to be who you are today okay well it's a big story but i'll just go short um, I grew up in Australia, in the Australian bush. 
my father was a preacher. So I got dragged into all through Asia, um, living in jungles and with bugs and frogs jumping around the shower and all these sort of things. But I really, I really got used to living in developing countries. And although my parents were, you know, missionaries and everything, what I really learned in the future was I, I felt really comfortable in, in developing countries, like it was my home. But also my message was love. You know, I think all the different religions and everything in the world and the spiritualities come down to this being of love. So that's what our message is, love in action. And I say to people, even if you have no skills, you get, you arrive at a disaster and people are traumatized. You just beam them love and you hug them and that's enough. So, you know, I grew up with this, this way of accepting everybody, loving everybody, and that's the main core mission behind all the other help we give. If we can't give anything else, we give love. And that's so needed in the world today. And it sounds cliche, but there's so much trauma going on in the world and so much hatred rising that we have to come back to that basic concept. So take us to, though, as a young person, so missionary jungles, did you have siblings? I mean, share with us, what was it like to be growing up as you? Um, I was pretty much just a very average girl like later on I say I'm just the girl next door but I live in the tent just a bit down the road but it was really just normal average person played sports and just you know just I don't know I'm just just a normal person okay I really am not this mother Teresa that goes off and does this and that you know I had boyfriends and I love music and rock and roll whatever so um it, but it just gave me a good base and my mother was all about unconditional love and that's where I learned the love from so you know um we did have a visit from Mother Teresa and Billy Graham when I was younger my father was a big preacher on TV as well so I got to meet them and she was about Mother Teresa was about getting down to that lowest person in the street with leprosy or the dog or, or anyone neglected and just sitting with them and beaming love into their eyes because that might be the first time <clears throat> and the last time they've ever experienced love. So that's what I try to do too in all these countries. I just sit down with them and I beam them a little love because that's maybe the first time they've ever had that. So that's that's the main message. That's amazing that as a young person that was just so, um, I guess, so natural for you. Did you have siblings? Yeah, I mean, I had two brothers and a sister. Uh, they were much, they were older, so a lot of times they stayed behind. But then I was taken with my parents all over to Tonga, Fiji, Malaysia, all through Japan, all through all through Asia. Did you have a sense as a young person that you? I mean, that's a real gift to be oh. able to see the world. Did you get how different that was? Uh, no, I just thought I just thought it was normal. I, all I wanted to do when I grew up was have a candy store and sell candy, you know, lollies we call them, and that was my vision. I was going to have four kids and live in the suburbs somewhere, and it kind of didn't work out that I didn't have kids, so I, I ended up with hundreds of refugee kids around the world, and I feel like I have hundreds of kids. So not everyone has to have kids. There's other ways to serve the world and everything. So I never. I never really thought. I just thought I was just the same as everyone else, which I still believe. And I just worked out the tricks of how to do it. Because the thing is, there's the rules of the world that everybody runs by. And they kind of follow like sheep, you know. But then there's the, I've learned the real, real worlds of the world. Um, and it's based in compassion and resilience and all of these other things. So, you know, so I don't break the laws in murder or anything. But I've learned to get around red tape and bureaucracy, which we're all stuck in, and get straight to the people, give them help. And that's what that's what I that's what I've worked out is from the grassroots up, not from the top down. We have to 
you know, it's a centralized system, but we have to work out how we can all help each other join in because these disasters are growing 5,000%. There used to be one big one a year. Now there's like one every day. So we have to sort of choose who we're helping, but we can't do it alone. Governments are falling that way. The, the disasters are becoming so big. And even America, they can't handle it that's so big. So all the grassroots, all the people need to step up and learn. It's very simple of how we can help and all work together. So that's kind of what I've learned. You know, I'm, I'm smiling um, and with a lot of respect because the notion of the say it skillfully is empowering all the voices and that everyone matters and that you need to speak up. And yeah. last week I had Alan Mulally on the show about working together. And I just, I love how you're kind of demanding this. Like there isn't, this is the way folks, right? We can be better. We need to be better. And most times people aren't doing things. They aren't creating bureaucracy to make it hard. It just is that way. And we have to see a better way. Did, did you, um, when you, did you go to college? Talk about your academic life. And, and then I'm curious how you, Seems yeah. like, you know, how, how you got there to are a lot of things. And people say, you know, do you have ADD? I say, no. A new path just opens up and I learned to take the journey. You know, so I started off nursing and then I actually was a math teacher for eight years. And then I was in a very bad character and I was crippled in a wheelchair for quite a while. And I had to learn to walk again and everything. And it was from a mini bus. So I'd been playing cricket championships and the bus rolls. And it was a long story. But then I set off when I was better to uh, start a new life in America. And um, oh, sorry, I forgot the question. What was well, it? It, so you're <laughs> talking about your path, but let us, you're kind of glossing over a very bad car accident, which I'm terrified to hear. Uh, how long were you out? And Oh, the career. Yes. Yeah, so... I got to America, um, I went to Boston and I was studying there and then I went up to New York. And I thought I was on my way to Paris. I ended up staying in New York 28 years. And first thing I did, um, I went, I didn't know what to do or have a job. So then I uh, I went to the big library and I studied uh, Series 7 and 42 and I became an investment banker. So that was an unusual job for a while, for four or five years, but it really wasn't me. And then I left and I went to NYU Film School and I learned how to do uh, filmmaking. And I was doing that for a while. And then September 11th happened. So nothing else made sense in my life and anything. And I went down there. I lost 64 of my friends that day. They'd actually been in my my little movie I'd just finished making. So then I nothing else made sense. And I just wanted to dedicate my life as service to others and for all my friends that had died that day. So that's kind of how it came. But as a humanitarian out in the field, I find that teachers, school teachers, um, uh, mums are really good at running refugee camps and, and getting everything in order together because you've got all these people and you're like, okay, let's go over there. We've got to find food, water and shelter. And it's really about organizing. And all the careers I've had my whole life have led to, the, to be a humanitarian because I can set up a field hospital and do medical with all the injured. And then I can sit outside with the kids and teach them, you know, English. I can call my investment banker friends to try to raise some money, use a little filmmaker skills to send them off videos so they can help raise more money to rebuild the village. So whatever have you job, you can transfer all those skills into humanitarian. Like I took an ex-boyfriend once and he was a film producer. He's like, what am I going to do? And he just did magic tricks with the kids and that was enough. But then he thought, I can produce a film, I can produce a village. So the same skills were raising money to rebuild a village. You know, so all these things um, add up in your life to become you know, what you what you are in the future. So don't be scared to just take that new path, you know, because it opens up your life. And I really feel like I'm one of the happiest persons that I know. 
And it's from deep, deep within, not all this outside stuff, but deep within a satisfaction of just being real service to others. And as you serve others, your life explodes and the universe opens up and it gives so much more back and you don't do it because of that. But it's amazing. It's like a magic genie. And I'm really fulfilled and I just want that for everyone. And volunteers get a bit scared. They go, well, I just don't know how to do it. You know, they want to do it, but they just don't know how. And I'm like, get your plane ticket, go over there, give it two days. If you don't like it, come back home and go play golf or whatever you do, but just give it a chance and no one leaves. I've had tens of thousands of volunteers flooding in from all over the world. They're like, I don't have any skills. Next minute they're over doing art with the kids or they're over there doing something. And it just grows in this army of volunteers. And it's, it's so resilient. And so many people come through and they say, oh, I've been rejected from the big organizations. I don't have a master's degree. I don't have this or that. I'm like, we accept everyone. It doesn't matter. There's something to do. You can peel carrots. We need to eat every night. You can peel carrots. You can go over there. You can go and help build with the builders. They'll teach you, you know. So there's something for everyone, and that's our real mission that everyone's needed, and um, that's our motto because we don't reject anyone. So um, everybody's welcome, <laughs> and it's, there is something. Even people can, can, can volunteer online on their computer for a few hours, and that's a big need as well. Yeah, well, we'll get back to the the hardcore, what people can do. A few yeah. things I, I want to, you know, you've, you have such compassion. Let's just, you know, you lost 24 friends in 9-11 and just 64. about 64, I'm sorry, 64 right. friends, um, getting over, getting over that, the mourning, the process, because, you know, there is a process to that, Allison, mm -hmm. and I don't want, you know, you just come across as, oh, it's so great, and, you know, People are dying in my arms, la, la, la. And yeah. that's, there's emotional thing there. So just talk to us about how you have come to embrace that emotional, to go through it, to be better for yeah. it, not to skip it. So, you know, I've seen a lot of trauma, a lot of dead bodies and everything. Um, after all this, after September 11th, I, you know, I went home for 10 days and I was traumatized. I really couldn't leave my apartment. But I've really learned after all these years of seeing all this, I, I can't, um, I put it in compartments. I've learned to live in the moment. Yeah, yesterday I'm having Thai food with my girlfriends, but this morning I'm with a rape victim or I'm collecting bodies. That night I'm sitting with all the volunteers around a fire on a beach and playing guitar. So I've learned to just be present in each of those moments. And it took me quite a while to get there, but that's how I do it. You know, I've just come home from something very traumatic you know, as in yesterday, but now I'm here with you sharing the moment. So it's being present um, and that's how I've learned. And people do say to me, how do you get through all this stuff? And my answer is a bit, sounds a bit ridiculous, but it really helps. Um, I When I get home from these missions, I put on America's Got Talent or The Voice, um, golden buzzer moments, and then these little kids, look, oh, they sing all these most amazing things, and it's healing. Music is so healing. So I pump music into my head, and I become present again of where I am. I'm here with my dog and my husband, but tomorrow I may be out on another mission doing. So that's how I've just learned to to deal with it all the years. We spend so much time about our trauma in the past, but we're only here 60, 80 years or whatever. So we just got to leave that behind. It happened. Yeah, it was bad, but I'm here now and I'm in this beautiful moment and we've got a beautiful life ahead, you know, maybe 20 years more or 40 years or whatever. We need to focus on that. So I've just learned to leave it behind and that's that's how I, that's how I personally have done it. So other people may do it different ways, but it's really worked for me. <laughs> Well, um, very wise words, and I think something for everyone to, to consider and to think about. 
Um, I always say, be your best friend, not your worst enemy, right? And at some yeah. point, you got to get over yourself. You know, I, I believe on one of these um, missions, you met the love of your life. So would you tell us how you met your husband? Oh, it's such a cool story. Um, so this guy from Miami was sending all the, ended up sending all the aid to us. And, I, I, you know, I took actor Sean Penn to Haiti and we ran the camp together. It was like 75,000 people. It was really intense and big and not enough food and everything. And he kept sending sending all this stuff. And then he wrote to me, he's like, what do you want? Uh, me to bring for you personally I said no I don't need anything we were you know we were living in tents I said just help the people just help the people he says no I'm bringing you something I said well I don't want to get scurvy we've only had rice and beans and that's all we eat so maybe bring some lemon juice and and then I said we haven't washed because there's no running water we use wipes and I said bring me a towel so he arrives with 12 big bottles of lemon juice and towels and we really fell in love but it was a little hard because we had I had a few admirers at that time who were my ex-boyfriend and Sean was there and everything so they were getting a little bit funny so it was this intellectual love kind of thing and then like a long time later we ended up kissing overlooking the whole refugee camp at midnight and it was really exciting but then we were walking back up to camp and we forgot that the 82nd Airborne were embedded in the trees with night vision goggles watching our every move so I was like looking at um my husband Albert and I'm like um what were we actually doing when we were kissing and that I was just a real embarrassing moment but anyway we fell in love as service to others it wasn't him and me and the relationship it was he and I and service to others every day we're in the refugee camp I mean IDP camp helping and that's that's how it really grew into something much stronger so now he's a businessman but every now and then he'll come out with us on some smaller journeys and we just really make it work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so it's very exciting. We got married there too. We got married a couple of years later up in a castle in Haiti. And it was so beautiful. And all the locals came and we dropped rum for all those that had died. And there was a, a Haitian voodoo priestess that sang French love songs. And it was just this whole romantic thing. So, you know, like volunteering too, like, when you're out volunteering, you really do meet like with minds, you know, and so many volunteers end up dating. We've had like Germans end up dating Israelis. They both couldn't understand each other in the language, but they ended up dating and getting married. And so it's a good way to find actually the love of your life. It's a good alternative to the dating apps, folks. Okay, you heard it first. Absolutely. And also OCD people, people with problems in therapy, you know, they're amazing in refugee camps So because they're cleaning, they're cleaning, cleaning, they're OCD cleaning, cleaning, which is amazing. That's what we need. So, so they, and they also find out that their problems are just so much smaller than all the problems out there in the world and they blossom. I just see people blossom all the time. I can't even remember a time when someone actually went home because they didn't like it. You know, so it's it's I just can't can't express enough how it creates such happiness in your life and it spills over to your relationships and your family and everything else. I love it. Allison, you've learned a lot in how to do your profession. And I'm be curious, you know, from that first being a ground zero to where you are now, perhaps take listeners through a bit of the learning journey in your career? Because I think that there's probably some things very high use for people Mm -hmm. listening. Learning journey. There's just so much to learn out there. First of all, wear sunscreen. Doesn't matter what color of your skin, the darkest, lightest, whatever, because I've been getting so much sun cancer. Um, but, but, you know, always to check your boots before you put them back on in the morning because there's always a little mouse or cockroaches or something in there. Um, but the bigger journeys, it's that, there's this thing about you know the government and everybody's going to come to save you and look after you, but it's just not true. And this we have these great skills that we don't know we have. 
And, oh, Josh, I've learned so much. I've learned um, it's really hard to raise money. So um, in the early days, people would give $1 and $2 and $10. But now they've seen 20-something years later that actually they get the video, they get the photo, and they get the receipt. And they see it go straight to the people. And even the people waving say hello to them. Whereas you donate to a lot of the really big ones. And they're good people working for the big ones, but the bureaucracy and the red tape is so big. So they have to raise $100 million before they even go out the door and help somebody. So that's been the hardest part because I'm a field girl and I'm always out in the field. So it's hard to do that and come back and raise the money and do it all. And that's one of our biggest something blocks because um, you know, we have 30,000 volunteers. We do amazing work. No one gets paid. We're out there. But all the money seems to go to the bigger ones. So I've just started to learn over the last few years uh, to write grants and how to tap into sort of the money side of it. But we've shown how to do it without the money. So I can't imagine if we had the big money, all these extra things we could do, because it's really about the heart of a volunteer, getting in there, everybody gets their way there. And I, you know, I take care of the food and accommodation, but it's usually in a developing country, so it's not much. But just so many lessons along the way. And but but also the lessons of, yeah, I can do it. I don't have to wait for, for the higher up authority to do something because they're not coming. Um yeah, and also not to base yourself in material things. You know, I, I see everybody's lives wiped out, but they're still alive. So I try to focus on, look, you're still alive. This stuff comes and goes. You can't take it with it in the end, you know, but you've just got to focus on your family and love and coming together. And it's utopia out in the field. Being in Maui, people all coming together up in the hurricane just now, uh, straight up to the, for those first three months, it's like, there's no red or blue politics. Everyone is hugging and kissing. Do you need food over there? Do you need this? And I feel like I wish the world could be like that on just a normal day. Hey, there's some people without food. Hey, you want some? But it's not. And after those months, you know, then it starts to get into anger and all these other issues. But um, those months I'm in the field and I'm, we're all kumbaya around the, around the fire at night. But then I come back home and I'm back to this world of this new growing hatred and all this stuff that's going on. So I just wish I could live out in there all the time. I do, people say, do you have adrenaline to rush off to these disasters? And I'm like, no, it's not adrenaline. I just know after all these years that I have things to give. And the main thing is the love. And then I know I can, I just know how to do this after doing it for a while. And it's really the grassroots. Connect with the communities. What do you want? You know, a lot of the big orgs move in with their flags and they set up and they're like, they don't even talk to the locals, you know. And I made the mis many mistakes over the years in Sri Lanka. We built them new homes with toilets. And then the chief's like talking into the camera. What are these contraptions that, that we and that help us wipe our bottoms and all this stuff. And they never had toilets before, but we didn't ask them if they needed a toilet. We just assumed they needed a toilet, you know, things like that. We made, you know, many mistakes over the years, but we've learned and we've grown and grown. And it's all about being humble and like, what do you need and how can I assist you to get back on track? You know, so that, there's some of the lessons. I mean, I could talk about the lessons for hours because we learn every day and we're still learning every day. And I'm, I, I'm after all the things that I've learned, I want to create a disaster force, you know, because this is these disasters are just slamming us five thousand percent. So a disaster force and the grass roots up and all our communities are resilient and we rise and we're all connected. And it's not even funded by the government who keeps defunding it. It's funded by the big banks. And it's like we're we're in first, we've got cameras, so everybody can really see in real time what we're doing. And it's not all this 
hidden veil of where the money is used because the big money doesn't usually get there. It's all the smaller groups and small church groups and volunteer groups that stay long term. So um, one day you will see the disaster force uh, on the level of a national force or space force. And uh, it's coming to you soon. <laughs> I love the vision, folks. This is what it takes. Even yeah. one soul who can seize the world and how it can be and can yeah. bring people along to that. It's so powerful. Uh, Alice, I want to get practical. This avoiding the frustration, the anger. Here you are in, in the, the paradox is that loss in me. No food, no water, no electricity, no one coming to save us. So happy. We're here. We're doing what we can. Come back to life with all the riches that are there. And then there's a lot of frustration, potentially anger with like, why does society work this way? How do you keep yourself in check? Because I can see that kind of, because, you, yeah. you know, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. I would get back from disasters and I'd have nothing and I hadn't paid my rent in six months and I'd be eating bananas. And I'd go to my, my girlfriends in New York were like CEOs of companies and very rich. And we'd go to their apartments and they would be buying clothes and things and writing checks for 250000 for all the products they just bought. And then I'm sitting there and no one has said to me, do you need a few dollars for your mission? So it, I, I did have anger for a while, but then I come 180 on it because we can't go out and help without the donations. You know, I mean, we can go and help, but we, we take these amazing solar lights, for example, you know, so they cost $10. So there's little things we have to buy, like water filters and things. Um, so I, but then I, then I became, I turned 180 because everybody of my friends started to donate and everything or other people I didn't know online. So they were helping and Americans and really, I mean, I'm living in America really have been helping a lot, you know? Uh, so it's, I, I, I've come full circle on it that, yeah, we, both sides are needed. You know, we, we don't, we, we value the value of time instead of a check, you know, as a donation of time, but now it's sort of a balance of both because we do need both. Um, I don't know if I'm making sense, but I've come full circle and it's hard been hard living in Miami because certain people volunteer, you know, the top of the list is women aged between, you know, 34 and 55. And it goes down the list, but the bottom of the list are the Spanish community. So it's been really, really hard to get them to understand volunteering and to come and join and volunteer. So, and I'm surrounded. So every other state I've lived in, I've had, you know, so many volunteers, but it's really been hard in Miami. And I understand, uh, you know, it's a lot of people here from all South America and, doing they're just trying to survive themselves I think but so it's been a little hard that way um yeah yeah so you mentioned and I could imagine this I'll call it quote unquote <laughs> this business skill of raising the money and what resonates and I, I am curious as you're going out because you you think about the direct impact it's very tangible easy yeah. to see um, people spend $250,000 on a new clothing or wardrobe, you know, so you're like, wait a second, I can do more with that. Yeah. What are you learning about appealing to people so that, you know, that they you know, contribute in a way that, that uh, is meaningful for them and for you? Yeah, it's tricky. I've had to learn this whole social media stuff. When I grew up, we write a letter and we wait 10 days for it to get there. Now people, if you don't answer the text in five minutes, so they're like, are you mad at me or whatever? So I had to learn all this reels and social media stuff, but it really works. Um, that really works. And instead of just saying, can we have money? We tell them, can we, this village was destroyed. It takes them 20 miles to get to the nearest food supermarket or whatever. So can you buy uh, put towards 10 bikes or something and then they see the receipt and they see the video and that so it's really about appealing to the individual 
about smaller items or um, <clears throat> just gaining the trust. So the ones that used to donate $10 now give us 10000 because they've seen 20-something years of it really getting to the people. And that's what I employ everyone to do is really look at the smaller ones. Or if you're out, if you're raising money for a disaster and you raise 10000 that's a lot of money. You know, if it's for like the Bahamas disaster, just wait. You don't have to rush the money off. And then you can just get a ticket, you know, plane ticket, a few hundred dollars, go there and identify a project and then work on, you know, the orphanage or whatever you want to work on. But you don't need to rush it off to the big ones anymore because, you know, they, they've got such a big overhead of their buildings and their flights and hotels and all this. And I've seen it all and I could write books and books against it, but I didn't. And that's why when I wrote the book, I didn't criticize all the big ones, which I've seen do dastardly things over the years and waste so much money but i just showed how to do it without it and that's what we've always done but um but we are learning to write grants and to tap into the bigger ones so any companies out there you know we're looking for you um because it's all about working together and we can't do it without you and i've really had to learn that over the years yeah i appreciate how you really <laughs> embrace that and that ability there is a bit of ego in check so oh, that- there's so much ego so much ego in the disaster aid world. I learned in the 2004 tsunami, there was a German plastic surgeon there. By the way, you'd come in with a pimple and you go out with 10 stitches because he was really ready to operate. But he said, look, it's more honorable to be a, a guns, an arms dealer. Here's my gun, buy it. But the aid world is very deceptive. They take, you know, so much of the money donated goes for all the personal stuff within their organization. I've seen them in $500 a night hotels, first class tickets and all of this stuff. And they'll, or they'll race in <clears throat> one of the biggest ones in Haiti when I was running the cholera zone was they said they had 300 patients and this was towards the end of it. And I knew that that didn't sound right. So I drove over and I'm like, you have two patients in here, but you just social media, you, uh, you have 200 patients. Oh, well, we had them in the past Things like that. They juggle it. They said they had to keep their numbers up for their financing to come in. There's all these tricky, tricky things that go on, uh, you know, but we try to bypass all that, keep our head down. And our mission is to get to the people to help. So that's what we do. And um, I just noticed out in this mission, all these orgs that started way after me had these big airstreams and banners and big tents and all the stuff. And I'm like, that's at least quarter of a million dollars that that's donation for the people, but they've spent on building that up. We don't have any of that. And all the volunteers are like, can't we have something like that? I'm like, I'm not going to spend people's donations on that. You know, someone comes separately a company and gives us that, but I'm just, I just, I can't get over that step. You know, we do have t-shirts and little branding, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah. That's a fine line. That's a fine line. The optics part is a fine line because it does influence. Um, I am, you know, I think for people thinking about volunteering, especially developing countries, there's an element of danger. Some of the situations from a health are very dangerous. So how do you charge? It kind of looks like Allison charging into danger. I mean, are you afraid? Like what is scary Um, to you? I charge in, but I'm careful. Like, you know, for example, the Ukraine war. We were just on the front lines for the last year, um, you know, rescuing orphans, women, children and everything. And then uh, I saw a gap about training soldiers. You know, they get a uniform and a gun for four days and they're sent to the front lines. And these are farmers and fishermen and accountants and lawyers and podcast people or whatever. So we started training all the soldiers. Um, but when I first arrived in, I was aware I met some U.S. and U.K. soldiers 
And I like, okay, so we're going to need some protection in here. We were in a city that was safe, but then I, I made friends with them. And I said, can we stay where you stay? And, you know, it's just networking that. So they gave us full protection out on the front lines when we're delivering food to the recaptured villages or when we're training soldiers. So just aware, uh, we are aware, <laughs> it's hard to explain, uh, I, it's kind of ad lib, but then I've, after so much experience, I've learned, you know, let's not leave this area at night. You know, I mean, I don't know how to explain it. I've just, um, we're just, I'm just aware of, of being doing it for so long. We've, we've never had anyone get hurt or anything, but there's a way to do it. And there's a way to get in the way too. So we don't become part of the problem. We're self-sufficient. We bring our own food and medicines and everything. And there's just a way to do it. I don't really know how to answer it properly. Um, I do have a faith in a higher power and have been protected over these years. And um Somehow it's just worked out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's a little bit more than luck there. I could see the higher power. Somebody yeah. is yeah. watching over you. Um, yeah. What, you know, what, it, it, do you want to be present in the moment? Because that is kind mm -hmm. of how you're able to serve the most and think in the future. And I think a lot of folks struggle, you know, here, be present, all blah, 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 but you know, yeah. we have to plan. So just how do you tell folks how you think about that? And I would love to hear how you and your husband, you know, manage to have this great relationship when you could be dashing off or whoever knows. Yeah. Yeah, that's two questions. So the husband dashing off, like when I wanted to go to Kopani, I, um, when the war with ISIS started, I, I met all the girl fighters online. I'm like, I'm ready to go with Kopani and stand with the female fighters. And we just got married. And my husband's like, uh, no, you're not. Uh, we're going to get a divorce if you're going to do that. And I was like, oh, sure, okay, I can't do that. You know, so certain things, you know, but we made it work in the end. And going off to Ukraine, he was really good and he trusted me after all these years of seeing me in disasters. And he's like, I think she's got it. So he didn't, he didn't complain about that. So it was interesting. But what we try to do is our romance is first. So when we're home on a weekend, that's dedicated to us, date night or time for us. And when I travel, I used to go for four years and come back. But now because I have a husband and I love him and everything, I go off for 10 days or two weeks and then I'll come back. We're together for a week. Then I'll go. And he tries to do his business trips while I'm off. So then when we're, we're both away and then we both come back together and somehow it works, it really works beautifully. And he's good. He's every other guy I ever dated was kind of jealous or intimidated by me or whatever, but he lifts me up and he's like, Hey, I made a phone call with the university. You can go speak there next week. You can do this. And he just keeps lifting me up. And that's the kind of one you want. You know, I dated a lot of a-holes over the years, but finally found the one of my love of my life in my forties. You know what I mean? So um, we just make it work and it's based on the love and really knowing that we need to focus on us first and then everyone else. But uh, and then we have all our magic moments as well. So it just works. So here you are, you know, because you run a, you run an organization. So pl planning, you have to be planful at the same time you're right here and now. And, you know, I just would love to hear there's no magic recipe for this at all. Oh, there's no how magic do you, how do you, Planning's hard. How do you do Planning's that? hard because everyone's like, can we have dinner on this date? And I'm like, you don't understand. I'm a disaster responder. I could be gone tomorrow. And remember, we we're trying to do this interview couple of times but I'm like in a disaster without wi-fi so it's hard to plan too far in the future as a disaster responder even trying to get our volunteers like they have to go the next day and that's hard for nurses to get out of their jobs at hospitals or doctors or whatever job you have so it's planning not too far in the future um 
but keeping an eye on that. For example, the disaster forts that I want to create. We've created resilience hubs around and we've just done a NOAA grant to try to do Maui in a resilience community driven because the, the government didn't turn the, the sirens on over there. They thought it's a tsunami siren. Everyone's going to run up into, into the mountain, which is the fire. But talking to everyone on the ground says we're pretty smart. You know, if you put the sirens on and we see fire, we're going to go the opposite way. So it's planning this um, community driven future with them, because even if you have all the fanciest system, getting the message to the last mile, it's not working. So that's why the message has to come from within. So it's just, planning um that's what i'm focused on in this resilience hubs throughout america and we did it in sri lanka successfully it's been running 20 years it's it's protecting the whole coastline it's a little community emergency disaster center the government has fallen in sri lanka but this hasn't fallen and it's helping them so it's creating hubs like that so that's what i'm planning in the future not too far but then staying really in the present because we've got a hurricane heading towards us now. It's a really deadly one and it could turn north, but I have to prepare this community in Miami. And that's what we did after Hurricane Irma. We created this CEOC. It's a community emergency operations center. It's tapped into the bigger one, but then it helps all the disadvantaged underserved communities because they never get help. They get electricity on last. They get no help. So, um, so that's what we have. And we have 180 orgs under the um, Climate Alliance. And we all help each other. And as soon as a disaster happens, we all respond. So it's about this resilient community rising up because I'm saying the government's not coming to save you. Allison, I want to segue because I imagine there's many listeners who are game on their fists. I want to do something. You know, how can I be helpful? And, you know, there, I'm sure there's many, many ways that each of us can make a difference. So I'd love to uh, ask you some suggestions for our listeners. So. After I do an interview or whatever, everybody wants to join third-way volunteers, you know, which is great. Volunteers, we need lots of volunteers. But um, I say, you know, people write to me from Africa saying, want to come here and volunteer. I'm like, you have problems over there in your own country. Or even if it's someone anywhere here, it's like, you don't have to join us. You don't have to write to the big organizations who aren't going to write back to you or whatever, or because you don't have a master's degree. You could find something in your own community. And you might go out and you might see a little um, <clears throat> an inner city area that has no flowers or anything or no way to like, grow some vegetables. So you might start a little community garden and, and it's just you and grab a couple of your friends who are like-minded and you go and you just start helping. And then other people join in and, oh, can I come too? And it ends up growing and growing. And that's your organization. You don't have to be a 501c3, but that's maybe later you start one. But that's how you help. And that's that's where you can be you don't have to be going overseas so there we've got so many problems on our own soil now there's hungry people here there's a lot of underserved communities that are under great threat because of all the hatred that's risen here and you know it's just time for you to just go out and find those little pockets and it's so fulfilling and then they're like oh where do I start where do I start it starts right here um, but so that's where you can start. And then it always grows to something bigger. I would get frustrated on the field because I'd see hundreds of miles of destruction and there's four of us. So, and we were running there, running all over the heads cut off. Then we had to realize, no, we can only help this village. It's a 3000 person village and we can just help, you know, but it always ended up being a lot more. And then we created a tsunami warning system, you know, not because we're anyone smarter than anyone else. We see a problem. Oh, there must be a solution to that. Oh, okay, this is a solution. Let's surround ourselves by the experts. So we do have the experts. That's why we did the Tsunami Warning Center. I'm not an oceanographer. Doing all the reforestation in Haiti, 
I'm not an arbiter, but I know they need trees and they need food. That's pretty simple. So I got the experts around me. So it's little things like that. So if you find a little project in your community, maybe you call someone that knows about it, a garden, about gardening, and they, they will love to help you. So that's how it all works. You know, start your own little one and it grows and grows and, and then it goes from there. I love it. I want to call out for listeners. What I what sometimes can happen is, are you doing it for you? Are you doing it to serve? Are you doing it because you're supposed to, because you think other people think you should do it? And I don't want to make any of that wrong, but being really clear. And if there's something that you see and it's an injustice for you in any way, and you can go out there and make a difference in that, you know, that's creating really positive change in the world that uniquely you see. And that's absolutely fine. If other people, whether it's your parents or friends have expectations, that's all lovely. But I, what I, what I sense in you, Allison, is this very deep rooted just so grounded on how I want to serve. And because you're clear on that, it then helps you identify what are the ways that you do that. And for folks listening, that doesn't just magically happen. And so I really do encourage whatever experience it is, as you heard, Allison, you can give it a try. It's not, we're not about being perfect. Trying is huge and trying and then learning and making the right mistakes and keep going. And folks, if everyone did that, the world's instantaneously better. Absolutely. And I made mistakes by the early days I'd hand money to people. And then everyone would come running and like crazy stuff. And I learned not to do that. But then you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So quietly, I have to, if I learned that someone had a heart problem and needed medicine or the old lady with the glasses that are all broken, I would quietly slip something to them, you know, to get glasses or whatever. But you just learn by trial and error. And yeah, I've made lots of mistakes, but I've learned a lot of stuff. And I really trying to, the, all the things I've learned, I've trying to teach a lot of the big organizations. Like one of the biggest ones uh, asked me to come to speak at their national conference about their, about their failures in Puerto Rico disaster after Maria. And I'm like, I can't stand there and tell everybody, you know, but, but, but it was really scary. But I had to learn a way to say there's a, we, there's a way we need to work together from the grassroots and the top coming together. You know, I had to work out a way, but it was so scary. But there, there is a way we can all come together. And a lot of these organizations just do their separate thing. And they will not work together. I've seen them come along and come to our, wherever our disaster area is. And because we're there, no, they'll move on to help another area. There's a lot of ego involved, but we can't have that, you know. we just got to bring ourselves down. We're not all that. It's not ego. I think I learned about ego too in the Sri Lanka. You know, they started to turn against us because they're like, who are volunteers? You coming to steal our land and all this stuff. And they turned against us and all this chatter. And we're, we've got billions of dollars building Swiss bank accounts and all, all this stuff. And then um, the women lost 28 members of their family or whatever. So they come to me and they were mad at me. But in the end, I was like, I just took the ego thing away and I just kind of rose to this new level of listening. And it's not about me. You know, they lost all their kids. It's not about me. They're just angry, you know. So it's just this, we have to remove our ego. I know it's not easy. We all have it and we all, you know, but it's just about a pure service to somebody else that's going to enhance their life. And that's where it starts, just one person. And it always grows to something much bigger. Yeah, I love to, I want to call out, I say it's good for the opportunity because what Allison's seeing in the field not working together happens in companies all the time. And, you know, this department doesn't want to work with that department. And it's easy to just kind of lock your hand. Well, they don't want to work with us. I'm like, okay, well, we could all do that and just stand there and look at each other. Or we could keep our ego in check, 
even though we might think that the other person is wrong, heaven forbid, yeah. keep our ego in check and just say, you know, we're here and we see, gosh, we see us really doing some other things that we could, we could learn a lot from you. So if you can be the one to extend the olive branch, we can't control whether they accept it or not. But for sometimes I see people like they're dead set and like, well, that's just great. Now we're in a standoff and nothing great is going to happen. So I, yeah. I just want to encourage folks and companies. There's a lot and, of parallels. And then also there's just for an example, there's a really big organization in Miami that's very corrupt. The leader is very corrupt, but they keep getting big funding and money. And the actual things they give out in disasters are, are good. The boxes of stuff are good. But it's like I cut, I cut myself away from them many, many years ago. But I'm out in the middle of disaster and I see their boxes with all their logos. I'm not going to bypass it. I get them and I deliver it to the home and they're all saying thank you blah, 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 to about the other organization and I just stay quiet because the people really needed that stuff. You know what I mean? So it's hard for me to do that, but I know that the the, the goods are needed to get to where they're going. So it's like you have to compromise, but at the same time it's just it's hard to watch as well. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate your openness about the scary moments, about the hard stuff, because folks, everybody's has it. And it's just a matter of thinking it through at the end. Are you serving the greater good, right? What is it that you're really there uh, trying to accomplish and not letting our own self kind of get in that way? I mean, yeah. Allison, I can imagine you have, uh, you know, many, many books worth of, of learnings, of uh, wishes for the bigger organizations, whether you're a government, whether you're a local politician, uh, some of the nonprofits, corporations, the big entities, share a bit of a wish list. If you woke up tomorrow, I wish that, what are some of the things you would love to see them doing that perhaps they're not yet? First of all, the, the big organizations, just being really honest about how much money goes to the actual victims because they're not being honest. Most of the big ones, 95% does not go. So a few dollars goes. I wish that they could really reach out and work with other organizations, but they don't. They stay in their lane because they have the resources, but we're the army that get it all out to the people. I don't leave things in warehouses. We fill up our cars and we go door to door. For example, in Puerto Rico, one year walking every single mountain and delivering 103 containers of aid, but we put it into their hands. You know, if you put it into warehouses in, in developing countries, they just sell it out the back door. It has to reach the people. So I see the big organizations really leaving stuff in warehouses for many, many years, and it just sits there rotting or whatever. I just see that often. Um, <clears throat> really having more per permission. So the bureaucracy and the red tape is so big that we would build a toilet in Sri Lanka. Everything's gone. We would do a big pit, 10-foot, lime on the bottom, women here, men over there, wrap it with plastic. That's it. Disease doesn't broke out. They will have to write back to their big organization, oh, can we build a toilet? By the time it goes for 20 emails through the bureaucracy, yes, we can build a toilet. It's three months later, but it's too late. It's broken out. So it's really about having more permission lower down the cash in the hound that they could probably, you know, get the food or get this and that, but it's just stuck and it doesn't work. <clears throat> and they know it doesn't work. So I wish we could just work together. And even though we're smaller, you can check us out. We have a great, you know, track record or whatever. But being able to work with the smaller ones or giving us your goods and trusting us that we can get it out to the people, but not just shutting down roads and you have to have pretty much a moon pass to get through some of the ways because they just take over in Maui, you know, FEMA and the big ones, they just took over, shut everything down, and no food could get to the people. So the local Hawaiians who were doing an amazing job, that first 10 days was all about them doing it all. 
they had to get their boats and drive the food and everything in to drop it on beaches because there's only one road and it was shut down, you know. It's not like there's a lot of things that I see out there that just don't make sense. Common sense. There's no common sense anymore. They have all these things going on, but I'm like, you've got to bring it back to common sense. And there's things I saw in Maui were just not common sense, you know, examples like that. So, you know, the big ones are needed. But they need to do a real check about their red tape bureaucracy. Things just take so long for them to get going. And and really, a lot of their money just doesn't honestly get there. Yeah, I appreciate some ideas. Yeah, yeah, thanks for being so open about that. I want to empower the folks who are in organizations of any size. When we see things that may be going on, they may not serve us. And it's easy to sit back. Well, somebody's, you know, some dopey person wants to do this. It's like, look, at they may not know. They may not know how. But if everyone just kind of offered in, and in a way with positive intention, not to hammer someone, but to say, gosh, I would love us to be better. Can we consider this? You know, I, and I really want to create agency for people who perhaps think this is just how it is. I'm like, no, it doesn't have to be this way. And yeah. in a positive can do hopeful way, I think that's, I think well, more of us have that within us than people realize. Yeah. Um, I, it, is I would, in us. it is inside us. You've got to release it and it's there. And once you release it, oh my goodness, your life explodes and you won't turn back. Yeah. You know, one question I didn't ask earlier, and I'm just I'm just curious, and you may not have any, but who were your mentors or you know, when, when you're in these moments, like what am I gonna do? Like, do you think of someone? I mean, who who kind of gives you comfort that you'll figure it out? I mean, in the early days, I was really <clears throat> a big admirer of Mother Teresa and also Unsung Sung Shi, the democratic leader of, of Burma, Myanmar. But I was a bit upset lately because of the Rohingya situation. I was just like, because I became friends with her and I actually visited her on a house arrest. So I, I really admired her. But then as everyday people like LeBron James, the basketball player, you know, he lived behind us for a while and he's a big, you know, basketball star, but he helped the handicapped community and handicapped kids and he helped so many people. So he became a little, a little hero, you know what I mean? Um, feminine energy. I've really seen so much destruction around the world and so much trauma, a lot coming from the male species. I love the male species, but all this bombing and raping and killing and all this, we got to have some feminine energy rising and taking back this beautiful balance on the earth. And that's why I think we were successful in Ukraine. We were all women. We had little hearts on our hats and people just accepted us because um, the United Nations statistic is one in three women in the world are raped in their lifetime. That's a billion women right now. You know, so we just have to, we really need to have this feminine energy rising uh, in positions and in, you know, from politics to wherever, you know, because it's just time. There's so much trauma. Yeah. Well, let's just take this to a point of reflection, Alison. You have accomplished a lot. You've learned a lot. A particular proudest accomplishment of yours? Oh, gee. <laughs> it's hard because every moment is special. You know, I'm sitting in Haiti in next to the worst sewer in City Soleil slums, and this kid couldn't get my attention because there's always 300 kids hanging off me, but they were all gone in school, and she's sitting next to me in a tattered dress, and she's just plaiting my hair, singing um, songs from church, 
And it was like being in a spa. It was the most beautiful moment that one of the moments that I've ever had. It's just one simple moment. But then there's moments when, you know, you have 10,000 people in front of you and and they just need direction of how to do something because everything's gone. So just it's just different moments. I could give a thousand billion examples like that. But it's the humble moments that you're just with a person. And I have this trick. So we're huggers and our main thing is hugging. And in COVID, we couldn't hug anyone. So that was really hard. So when I go to a disaster, before I ask, you know, if you need anything, I go and hug them. So I'm hugging them. And the usual hug, you know, people hug and hello and they let go. I don't let go. I hold them even longer and I won't let go and I hold them. And then suddenly you feel this release and they just sink. And it gives them permission to just be in your arms and they cry or whatever, you know, and, and and sometimes, you know, that hug is like 40 seconds and sometimes that hug is 10 minutes. But it's the most beautiful form of unconditional love that you will ever feel. So those are the most special moments, just two humans connecting. No walls, discrimination, all the different nationalities, whatever. We're just humans. And that little hug, ah, oh, it's so beautiful. And I live for those moments, for the, those hugs. Yeah, so we just hugged a lot of people up north, you know, and at first they're all big tough guys or whatever, tough women, and you just hug them, and then it's the first time after the disaster they get a chance to just relax because they've been keeping it strong for their three or four kids who have nothing and they don't know where to live and they're lying on the ground. But that's their first moment of release, and that's mental health, and mental health is so needed in this world. And I believe, you know, a lot of a lot of first responders used to just have, um, you know, PSTD and mental health, but it's everyone. I believe everyone has mental health after COVID. The person who didn't get to go to the prom is sitting at their computer. The little kid in the class wearing a mask. We all have some form of PSTD, which is just a bit of trauma. So that hug is the most special thing to do. Ah, big hugger and never letting go. I love it. So we could go on and on and on and on. One question for you to wrap and you've been very generous as you, that's just your nature, but in sharing with us today, and I, I'd love for you to share with listeners, just what was it like for you to, to share with us today? That's a very interesting question. And I can, I can start it with, uh, after the trauma of September 11th, uh, I kept it all inside, but then I started to talk about it and tell people and talk, talk, talk. And when you talk about the trauma, it gets it out of you. So many people go through stuff and it's locked inside and they can't talk about it from rape to whatever and it stays in and it, it creates actually creates you know physical cancer or whatever you know it, it's locked inside of you. So I've learned to just get it out and talk, talk, talk. And so I've just come from two very traumatic hurricanes, but I've never really had anyone to talk about it back home. So talking about it with you and everybody listening helps me heal you know it's really getting it out of me and you need to know what's going on out there because you don't really hear the real truths on the news because a lot of the organizations are not allowed to say certain stuff but I just say it all you know because no one's going to come and I'm running my own org so no one's going to come and tell me not what to do or whatever. so but just talking with you all today there's so much for you know you to learn but I learn too and as I hear myself I get ideas but getting it out of me getting the trauma out of me has really helped me today. So I really appreciate that and spreading the message. You know, it's hard to get the message out there and we just need to keep spreading it and spreading it so people know, oh yeah, I can do this too. I'm just I'm just like her. I guess I can do it too. Yeah, you. we are just like you. We're not just like you, but we want to aspire <laughs> to be just like you. It's a third wave volunteers. What's the website? Allison? Yeah, thirdwayvolunteers.com. Yeah, so we'll send folks that way. H-I-R-D, third yes. wave. Third. Yes, and we, I'll include that in the post. 
Um, we love people's input, your ideas, your energy. You know, Allison, you have made me a better human being just being with you today. So I want to thank you for that. Um, it's very moving for me and very comforting for me to know that you're leading a charge and that you're igniting others to do the same. Um, you are a big part of the solution, my friend. If there's any tiny way I can be the least bit helpful to you, please, please, please reach out. Um, we will have a an in-person hug before long. And I just know that you are part of the solution. You're really helping us all be safe, seen and heard and our true and very, very best selves. Thank you. You take good care. Thank you very much. Yeah. Oh, folks, uh, my thought for the week, of course, from Allison, it's easy to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's leadership to be at the wrong place at the right right time. time. Yes. So great. That's great. (laughs) Okay, folks, that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Allison's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.